Welcome to the Singapore Management University podcast series, where we feature the latest insights and perspectives from our faculty. Assistant Professor of Accounting Richard Crowley from SMU's School of Accountancy examines financial accounting using both archival and analytical methods for his research. Much of his archival work deals with large sets of unstructured data using high-powered computing algorithms to address accounting issues that are otherwise infeasible to approach. He has recently written two research articles on using a machine learning technique to assess the content of companies' disclosures. In this podcast, he discusses how fraud and misreporting can be detected by studying a company's financial statements using a machine learning technique and shares how companies disclose financial information on Twitter and how feedback from investors and others influences this. Professor, what is misreporting and what are some of the examples of misreporting? So misreporting has a lot of different aspects to it. Um, So traditionally what we think of is companies manipulating their revenues or their earnings, right? So you think of the company who's performing poorly and then they try and claim that they're doing well, right? So you have, for instance, examples like uh, you could look at Wells Fargo, right? That's one of the bigger ones in the past decade. They were not meeting their targets. And so what did they do? They create 1 million fake customers, claim they have revenue from those customers, and book it. Right? And then there looks like everything's very good for the shareholders until you realize that it's all based on fake people who don't exist and then it collapses. Uh, but there's actually a lot of other types of things that fit in with this. Uh, for instance, you could have the company who's performing too well. Uh, so Dell was an example of this. Right? They actually they were getting lots of money from Intel for exclusivity uh, to use Intel processors in their laptops. And they got, say, $300 million at once and said, we don't want to book this all right now. We want to save some of this in case we don't do as well next year. That's still financial misreporting, right? So the company is actually doing better than you think, but they're not being very transparent with their investors. And so their investors won't be very happy. Um, But there's also other things that could be going on. So it could be, say, covering up related party transactions where the CEO gives, say, their brother some money as a loan. Um, Investors don't want to see that. Um, And so if they're not disclosing this properly, then investors will still get upset because there's some sort of lack of control within the company. Why did you do a study on using annual report text to detect financial misreporting? Back in my PhD at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, one of the things I was most interested in was why companies release so much text in their annual reports. Um, So you could look at, say, Citigroup's most recent annual report. Their document is 305 pages long. The part that we typically think of when we're looking at, say, accounting is the financial statements, right? Those are only eight pages out of 305 pages. There's another 297 pages of disclosure there that have nothing to do with what people usually think about as accounting. And so one of the things I was interested in is just why is that there? At the exact same time I was looking at this sort of issue, I was also looking at uh, some literature on Bayesian spam filtering. So you think of, say, you get spam emails, right? And if you're using Gmail, right, it automatically tosses them in a separate folder for you. And so there's, of course, a whole line of research in computer science on this. And one thing I was thinking about is, could we do something like that with annual reports? Right? So could we take the annual reports and automatically categorize, you know, one is, OK, this looks fine, this looks fine. And then you get one and you say, this one just looks a little off. So maybe we'll set this aside. Right? In that case, if you're the regulator, like, say, the US SEC or the MAS in Singapore, you'd say, those are the ones I want to look at. So I was also talking with a PhD student in computer science there, um, Xiao Yu, who's now actually a researcher at Google. And he pointed me in the direction of uh, something called topic modeling. So this is a more of a sophisticated way of actually analyzing what's in these documents. 
And when I saw that, what I realized is that this sort of was a perfect fit for what these companies are disclosing, right? So we, we know they're disclosing all sorts of things. They have things about their environmental performance. They have things about their industry, about their business. If they're doing manufacturing, they'll talk about their factories. They'll talk about risks the company's um, experiencing. And so you have all sorts of things in this document, right? And one thing I was thinking is, well, if we can categorize what they're talking about there, that'll give us insight into what's in all these other pages, right? So we don't necessarily know across the broad swath of companies, right? If you look just uh, just 1994 to 2012, there were over 3 billion words in these filings. 3 billion, right? So that, that would take the average person about 19 years to read, which is it's just crazy, right? But we take this algorithm, apply it there, and then understand what companies are talking about, and look if there's any variations in this that sort of look a bit off, right? Um, so you think, uh, say, if a company is maybe uh, falsifying some of their revenues, right? They're not going to uh, say if it's a manufacturing company, they'll probably try and stay away from talking about their customers a little bit, right? So they don't want to talk about the area they're committing fraud. They'll go to sort of the other parts. They'll beef up their discussion of, say, their environmental reporting. They'll beef up their risk assessment. And they just sort of downplay their uh, manufacturing side. Um, there's actually a lot of research in psychology that's looked at this, um, also in communications, where they find actually if you're lying to somebody, you're very intentional about what you say when you're lying. So you're actually sort of just dance around the topics you don't want to talk about. And so we're sort of just applying this idea to companies as a whole, right? So we just take all the companies across the entire economy and just take this sort of same theory, use machine learning to do it en masse to see who's lying and who's not. What were your key findings? So we had, a, uh, a, I think, a few key findings. But actually, so from the perspective of somebody in accounting, the most interesting finding is probably simply that accounting doesn't work for catching this. Right, so you'd think somebody's manipulating their accounting statements, right? They're changing their earnings, they're changing their revenue. You say, why don't we just look at the revenue, right? But the thing is, companies are really good at manipulating these things. So we've done this, we've looked at, say, in the 90s, you could use accounting numbers, you could pin down a lot of them. By 2005, you can pin down not a single company using financial ratios, right? So companies sort of realize the tricks that, say, auditors and the government were using, manipulate around that, and now they're in the clear. But what we find is that if we bring in this measure of just what companies are talking about, all of a sudden, we have consistent performance across all years. We can actually, uh, for, for instance, for the biggest frauds across the, the whole US from uh, 1994 to 2012, we pick up another 59% of the frauds that any other measure on the market wouldn't get. Um, so I think that's uh, just the, sort of the efficacy of the measure is quite impressive. That's one of the big impacts here. Um, so even just based on this, right? Um, we know, that, for instance, the US SEC is actually looking into these types of measures to beef up their own detection methods um, for detecting financial misreporting. How can we detect if a firm is currently involved in a major instance of misreporting? Yeah, so that's a, it's a very difficult question, but a very important question in all this, right? So I can say I have this measure and look, it picks up a lot of frauds, right? Now it's also gonna pick a lot of companies that aren't necessarily doing anything wrong, right? It's an algorithm, it has its faults. And so what we're showing is actually a first pass at what you would do if you're actually trying to find companies committing fraud, right, or committing some sort of misreporting. Um, so you think of if you're an auditor, if you're a government, right, you can run this algorithm. It gives you an idea of what to expect, but it's not the full story, right? After you have sort of this first pass, then you need to actually dig into what's going on, right? So you can't just rely on the algorithm and say, okay, we're done here, right? No. So um, you could say, run the algorithm, right? It'll say, here's your top sort of top decile of companies to expect might be committing misreporting. And you say, we're going to look at those in a bit more depth, right? So maybe you're going to go in, you're going to ask for extra uh, information from the companies, get all their transaction databases, maybe get some of their communications. Um, so at this point, this is usually where the SEC would step in and say, hey, you know, we're going to put a freeze on, say, deleting any communication. 
and now we're going to do a proper investigation. But you have to keep an open mind, right? So as I said, not everybody is going to be actually doing anything wrong, right? So you can't go in assuming this company is actually committing fraud or something like that. But you can go in and say, this is a company we have to be careful with. You analyze all the uh, financial reporting, you analyze the communications, and you see if there's anything a bit off. Um, so for instance, I have uh, this diagram that I'll uh, provide for you for the website. Um, but it's this diagram of on, uh, in the company Enron, right? So it's one of the biggest frauds in US history. You knew that there was sort of something going on that there seemed a bit off um, when the US government came in. But what they didn't know is what was actually going on and where it was occurring, right? And so, for instance, you could take a look at the communications in Enron, right? So uh, the, the graph shows essentially a network of all the emails that were sent within the company leading up to the US investigation. And what you see is that there are some patterns, it just looks a little off, right? And so the, the highlighted dot in that graph is actually somebody who would become a whistleblower for the US government. What you see is that they were sending a lot of communications outside the firm, for one, like thousands of emails outside the firm that you wouldn't expect to see. And there's also, they were pinging certain people within the company who were either the ones involved in some of the fraud or other ones who were sort of sympathetic to sort of the, the whistleblowing within the firm. And so as an investigator, right, that's what you want to see, because then you can find the people who know what's going on, you can talk to them, and then figure out what's actually going on. What are some of the patterns you've observed that companies use for their Twitter feeds? So my newer work is looking at what companies are discussing on Twitter, how they're discussing it. Um, and so in this paper, what we're doing is we're looking at how companies disclose financial information on Twitter. And what we find surprising is that companies are pretty transparent on Twitter. Um, so you know, we like to think of companies as perhaps trying to hide bad information, try and make themselves look better. Um, so they say, you know, here's all of our good information, look how great we are. But actually on Twitter, if there's some sort of bad news, say they have uh, bad earnings this quarter, they're actually very transparent. They'll say, you know, here's our earnings press release, go take a look at it. And they, they actually post it, which is uh, actually quite a pleasant surprise. Um, and not only do they push this information where it's sort of needed, right? So they're actually, if you have really good information, they're going to post. If there's really bad information, they're going to post. If it's information people don't care about as much, right? Say it's earnings are exactly what you expected they don't actually post that very much. So just sort of these information that would move the market. Um, a bit more on that, though, is that they also seem to be using some of the other features of Twitter more when they have in interesting information. So for instance, if uh, earnings are very good or very bad, they'll also post a link to a press release. They'll also, say, post some images on there. They may include some financial figures in a, uh, or, say, a graph of their earnings. Um, and so they're actually surprisingly quite transparent um, on the platform. I think one other uh, interesting thing we've looked at in this paper is we also looked at how companies respond to feedback about these tweets. Right? Um, so for instance, the company posts about their earnings. If users on Twitter respond to that, so if they say they retweeted or if they like the uh, tweet, there's a 40% chance the company will do this again next quarter. If users don't respond, it drops to 8% next quarter. Um, so there's actually a pretty big impact uh, coming from the users on Twitter themselves. So the companies seem to actually care about what people think about this. And uh, so you think of uh, if you're an investor, right? If you like what a company is doing on Twitter, if you retweet that, actually that'll help sort of tell the company this is what you want to see, and they'll actually keep doing it. It's nice to sort of see this interplay between investors and companies. Could you tell us more about the machine learning method underlying both of these papers? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, underlying both of these papers is a method uh, called latent Dirichlet allocation, or LDA for short. Um, so it's actually a fairly old methodology when it comes to computer science. Uh, so it comes uh, from a paper in 2003 by Blay, Ng, and Jordan. Um, and that one actually, it's a pretty simple idea, but it's a really powerful idea. So you see it's actually used in all sorts of contexts. Um, uh, pretty much every day you go on the internet, anything that you use, 
it's probably somewhere underlying one of the websites you were on. So for instance, like uh, if you go to New York Times, the recommended articles that they show you are actually based on this algorithm. But what the algorithm is doing is it just says, so we know people talk about different things at different times, right? So let's just assume there's some distribution of topics among a collection of documents. And let's assume there's some distribution of words in each topic. Well, we take the documents, right? We can see what words are in those documents. But what we don't know from a machine learning perspective is what are the topics actually underlying all these documents? And so they just use a statistical process. Um, so it's actually very theory driven. And they can sh sort of show, like, we can actually sort of invert this whole process to say, OK, given we know what's in the documents, the words, right? We can actually back out the topics. And so we can end up sort of getting some understanding of giant corpuses of data, right? We can take 100,000 or a million documents, and then get back some information about, you know, here's the different things showing up. And so the, for the Twitter papers, there's actually a, a variant of this algorithm. Uh, it's actually um, has a couple people from SMU SIS on it, which is quite nice to see. Uh, so Yipeng Lim and Jing Jiang uh, from SIS were involved in that project. Uh, but they took this original algorithm and tweaked it for uh, sort of working specifically with Twitter. And so those are sort of the, the two different algorithms underlying this, but they're in the same class there. Thank you, Professor. Yeah, thank you.